invite you to follow in your Bible as we continue studying Matthew's gospel today. Matthew chapter 8, I'm going to begin reading at verse 18, reading actually two different episodes with, I believe, a tie between them. I'll read verses 18 through 27 of Matthew 8. Listen to this, which is the inspired Word of God, infallible in its power, without any error in all that it speaks and teaches. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. And then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. And this is the word of God. The Western movie or TV show is rather out of fashion today, but one of the good ones made before they became somewhat passe was a movie called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I'm sure many of you have seen it before. Paul Newman, Robert Redford playing the title roles of Butch and Sundance. Lovable outlaws who were quite successful at robbing banks and trains. That is, until the head of the Union Pacific Railroad got a little tired of them. And this gentleman apparently hired a top-notch posse to bring their outlaw career to an end. And in the film, you find Butch and Sundance riding away from a train robbery with these men hot in pursuit. And you learn later that they are several famous marshals who always get their man and with them is an Indian scout who is known as the absolute best, who can track a man anywhere over any terrain. Well, Butch and Sundance try three or four maneuvers on their horses to get away or obscure their trail or throw the posse off the track. And there's a classic line in the movie when they've tried several things and they're at the top of a hill looking to see if the posse is still coming, and sure enough, over the rise, they come relentlessly following the trail. And one outlaw turns to the other and says, just who are those guys anyway? Well, that's the question that was being asked in a boat on the Sea of Galilee by a whole band of disciples. When Jesus had abruptly 
be calmed a sudden and frightening storm. Just who is this man? How can he do these things anyway? Who is Jesus? That seems maybe very elementary to you, but it's the great question of the ages, the great question for humanity to face. And Matthew's gospel is raising that question as Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is bringing in an organized way different episodes, different tellings of things in the life of Jesus Christ to help you build a case of evidence, especially based on the wonderful authority that Jesus had that impressed people. By the way, out of nine times that Matthew used the Greek word for authority, five of them occur within these couple of chapters, eight and nine, that we're studying here. We saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus spoke with remarkable strength. And people said, oh, he speaks with authority. What is it that makes someone's speech, someone as a speaker, a Winston Churchill or a great preacher, riveting to you? It's not an easy thing to define exactly. But one of the things is certainly that note of authority, certainty in what the person understands and communicates. Well, then we also saw last time how Jesus was granting powerful healings in a decisive way. All he had to do was speak a word or touch someone, and the person was healed. Now, today we have before us a text with two outwardly different episodes in it. One is about calling disciples and what disciples have to do to follow him. The other one is about commanding a storm to cease, and they don't seem to have exactly anything in common except that they appear to have occurred one after another. But there is a unifying thread. And I believe the thread is this otherworldly authority that Jesus Christ owned and exhibited in his life. Where else are you going to find a leader with such absolute certainty attending everything that he does and says? When Christ is at the center of our lives and we yield honor and faith that are due to him, we are following someone who knows exactly where he is going and who is able to take us along with him. You see, that's the big scramble that's going on in the political sphere right now for a presidential race that's still quite a ways off. We're trying to sort through this scramble of candidates. Who has any kind of authority? Who really has a plan? You know, who really is able to lead and not just come and and present image and style and, you know, spin? We're looking for that. We're not finding too much of it in our political world today. I want you to see today that the authority of Jesus Christ makes him entirely unique And it makes him deserving of our awe, our reverence, but something else. Our unqualified obedience to his demand that we follow him where he calls us to go, regardless of cost to us or any other thing that would come in our way. Now, first of all, I believe our text in verses 18 to 22 tell us that Jesus was a man with authority to set standards 
for all his would-be disciples. He was a man with authority to set standards for would-be disciples. Here we have two brief conversations, very brief, probably a few more words than this were said, but, but just the gist of it is given here with two different men, each of which wanted to be a disciple of Jesus, wanted to come with him. In fact, they're called, uh, at least the second man in verse 21 is called a disciple. The first man comes and states a request to be able to go along, and Jesus makes an enigmatic statement. He doesn't really say, yes, you can, no, you can't. He just states terms and says, this is what it's going to be like. The second man asks sort of permission to do things on his own terms, on his own level. And Jesus tells him that discipleship is not intended to be made convenient to his life priorities. You see, at this time, I think, as Matthew's presenting this development of the ministry of Christ, the time has come for some separations to take place. The crowds have been pushing in. Jesus is very popular. Everybody wants a piece of him. Many people just for their own selfish advantage. I want to get well. Lord, help me. Give me what I want. Make me well. Heal me. And if they get what they want, they'll go away satisfied and say, Jesus, he's a great guy. Look what he did for me. But then there are others who are near him who are drawn in a deeper way. And they can't really explain why they're there or where they're going with him, but they just know they have to stay with him and follow where he goes. And they are called disciples. And you notice as I began to read today in this passage, verse 18, when the crowd was around him, because of the crowd being around him, apparently he gave orders to cross the lake. In other words, I see there are many people here that I could help, but we've got other priorities So we're going to leave the crowd and go across the lake. And the implication is disciples are going to go with him. So the question is, who's a disciple? Who's going? And that's when these two guys come forward. The first man is called a scribe. Now, that means that he had some religious attachment to the law of God, to the ceremonies of temple or synagogue. He's not one of the highest positions in the, in the religious realm, but kind of a lower person who was a, probably a student, somebody who dealt with manuscripts and studied the Scriptures. And in that day, there weren't seminaries. There weren't formal universities. The way you studied the Word of God was find a teacher who knows it and attach yourself to him. And you say, teacher, I'd like, to be, I'd like you to be my mentor. Can I go along with you and just attend your teaching and hear what you say and learn from you. I'll take notes for you. I'll run your errands. I'll cook your meals. If you'll teach me Torah, the law of God. There are people who approach the church of Christ today, very much like this scribe, I think. Sometimes you almost get the feeling that people come to a congregation. I've heard this from fellow pastors many times. And It's almost as if they're giving you the implication that the church ought to be privileged to have them in attendance. And since we should be honored that they're here, then they should certainly set their own terms for what it means to be a disciple or a member or or to serve. But you see, Jesus wasn't that interested in just acquiring warm bodies to fill up space or numbers to fill his retinue so he could say, well, I... Look at this. Look at all the people who are following me. 
he really wasn't that impressed. In fact, he was just going to put the terms of it all out there and see how they would react. And so he gives this little statement about what it meant for him to be in ministry. It meant to be he was homeless. Jesus was a homeless man. He was born in a borrowed stable. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He didn't own any real estate or automobiles in between. And evidently, when he died, the only possession of any value he had was the robe that he wore, that the soldiers took and gambled for. And he said, look, this is, this is me. This is who I am. Even foxes have a warm, snug hole in a winter's day, and, and birds have nests. I don't have that. I'm totally dependent on the, the regard of others and the help of others. Are you ready to do that if you come with me? And he leaves that question hanging in the air. And we don't know how the man answered. One theologian called it cheap grace. When people expect to have forgiveness without repentance or, or attachment to a church without deep profession of faith and service, this man, it at least is implied, was seeking after some kind of an easy gospel that he could pursue as he chose to do it on his terms. I think he's kind of like many today across all of Christendom who come with a one-time verbal claim of faith and maybe that was validated in a communicant class experience, a membership experience, a, a baptismal experience. And, and so they say, now I'm attached. I belong to Christ. And they think that's it. They're set for eternity. Nothing needs to change about the way they live, the way they speak, the way they entertain themselves, the way they do their work. They just more or less drift along, actually very far from Christ because they've never been born again by the Spirit of God in the first place. Jesus, you see, demands to be Lord. That's what this is all about. He's saying, if you're going to come to me, you've got to share everything that is mine. And that means being unpopular. It means being an outcast. It means doing without certain things. And I'll give you no guarantee whatsoever of comfort, security, or popularity. And if you can't take that, then think twice and think a third time. Because it's not admiration of me that's going to count. A disciple has to be prepared for sacrifice and work and obedience and tears, and hardship on his way to glory. Well, the second man comes, and, and he is a curious situation. He says, Lord, I'll follow you, but, you know, I just need a special permission from you. How about a delayed enlistment? Let me go and bury my father first, and then I'll follow. Well, if you don't understand customs of the day, you would think Jesus sounds absolutely harsh and even cruel in the way he replies when he says, let the dead bury their own dead. What in the world is he saying? What did he mean by that? Well, we make a surmise that we have a pretty good reason to think is accurate. You see, in that day, for one thing, in a Jewish home, when someone died, burial happened immediately. So if this man's father was actually dead, he would have been at a wake and a funeral. He wouldn't have with the crowds listening to Jesus. His father probably wasn't dead. What he was actually saying was a common expression of the time that 
came out of the Old Testament obligation to honor father and mother. He was saying, saying, I have an elderly parent who needs care. And my father's way up in years and he's dependent on me. So, Lord, let me go and keep my household in order and care for my father. And when he is buried, I will be able to come and follow you. Well, it sounds pretty noble. But Jesus actually shocks us when he says, no, not good enough. I must claim a higher loyalty. Is Jesus telling us not to honor father and mother? Of course not. Of course not. He absolutely supports every aspect of the law of God. By all means, honor your father and mother. But he says, I want you to understand by the way I'm addressing you here that there is a radical demand for a fundamentally greater responsibility. And that is, if you're going to call me Lord, I'm first. I'm first. Even before that which is as close to you as the loyalty you have to a wife, to a husband, to a child, to a parent. And that, by the way, in the law of God, was the highest loyalty. Family was was very, very exalted. So Jesus is saying, I have to be more exalted in your obedience and your understanding. In the church, we hear lots of versions of this man's delayed enlistment plea. I'll probably step on some toes. But I've used these kinds of things myself, so I'll step on my toes while I step on yours. The delayed enlistment plea says things like, oh, I'll, I'll be able to serve Christ when I don't have these little kids at home occupying all my attention. Oh, I'll be able to serve Christ. You know, I have teenagers. They, they demand a lot, and I've got to get them through college, and it's a big responsibility. I'll be able to serve Christ after that. But you know what comes after that? Oh, I'll be able to serve Christ when my mom, who has Alzheimer's, passes away, and I'm, I'm not responsible to care. Hey, any season of life, you name it, you can decide that there's something very legitimate. And this is not saying those things are not legitimate. But in every season of life, there's something that it's possible to put before service to Christ. And I think we're challenged today. I'm challenged. Love your wife, of course. Love your family and lead them, of course. Be a grandfather to wonderful grandchildren, of course. But there's someone that claims a higher loyalty. He is Jesus Christ. He claims supreme loyalty above anyone and anything else, no matter how legitimate it is. True followers of Christ are asked to reorder their life options so he will hold a ruling preeminence in all our waking hours. Now, that doesn't have to mean you ignore those other responsibilities. No, it just means that something else comes first. Know what is first. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can do those things second and third and fourth. But know what comes first. Or you'll be all out of whack as far as a disciple is concerned. Jesus was a man with authority to set standards for his would-be disciples. Now, the second episode of this text is verses 22 to 27, and it's a very well-known incident. I'm not going to dwell on this story that much. You know it so well. It's also found in Mark 4 and Luke 8, so I'm sure you've heard sermons before of Jesus calming the storm on the, from the, in the Sea of Galilee. And you've probably been told before, maybe you've visited 
the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful place. It's one of the few places, by the way, if you've never been to Israel, that probably exactly conforms to your to your expectations from Sunday school. You know, Jerusalem is is quite different. Uh, a lot of things are very different. But the Sea of Galilee is lovely and calm and undeveloped, just as you kind of expect it to be. It's a it's a lake that's 638 feet below sea level. Now that's significant because it's ringed by hills and. Breezes come and go down through the channels of those hills and hit that lake and create, even today, sudden storms. It's known for that. It's normally calm, beautiful, but but all of a sudden, a storm can come. Well, that's what happened here. And before us is this lesson in the second place that Jesus was a man with authority to rule the forces of nature. read an interesting... uh, book not that long ago, a few years ago. The author is Sebastian Younger, spelled with a J. Sebastian Younger writes the book called The Perfect Storm. It interested me a lot because my wife and I once lived near Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is the main scene of it. And it tells a true story of the 1991 loss of a commercial fishing boat named the Andrea Gale sailing out of Gloucester. My wife and I used to like to go to Bass Rocks north of Gloucester and watch the storms. Sometimes when our daughter was just a baby, it would be a stormy night, and we'd say, let's go watch. And we'd pack the baby up in the back seat and just go and watch the storm and the waves come and crash in. Well, you read The Perfect Storm, or you can watch the movie version of it, and you don't even have to watch the movie to be seasick at the way Sebastian Younger paints this terrific almost once-in-a-century kind of collision of storms in the central North Atlantic in which the Andrea Gale was caught. Waves, the height of a 15-story building, crashing and tossing this little boat, which was a powerful diesel engine boat, but was really like a child's little toy, tossed about until it was smashed and all hands went down. In the Old Testament Scripture, The ocean is viewed as a place of power and mystery. Most people didn't venture out on it. And they looked at it and they looked at storms and they said, whoa, stay away from that. And you read that, you pick up hints of it in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and other places. A prime mark of the sovereignty of God was that he commanded oceans. For example, Psalm 89.9 says, you, O Lord... Rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Well, the Sea of Galilee was hardly the North Atlantic, but it certainly was a microcosm for showing the power of God over nature's storms. We have the united testimony of three Gospels that tell this simple, dramatic story of a man seeing his disciples in a state of panic. Some of them, remember, experienced fishermen who ought to have known how to handle a boat in a storm, and they were afraid they were going to die. He says, what are you afraid of? Where's your faith? And then, although these are different words, but the other Gospels use the words he spoke to the storm, be still! I don't know how loud he shouted. It isn't important how loud he shouted it. 
What's important is he commanded it, and it happened. Jesus did upon the Sea of Galilee what only God can do, according to the Old Testament, still the storm over the natural world. You have to decide, is this an interesting legend? A curious something, you know, the storm just happened to stop when Jesus said something was just a big coincidence? You'll have people who will explain it that way. You have to decide. Was this the the authority of God spoken in a man commanding the power of the natural world? Because you see, that's what he said when he rebuked his disciples and said, why didn't you? Why why did your faith think that that God would let you die with me here with you? And in so many words, he said, you need to trust me in the place of God as you would trust God. Trust me. And then he showed him that he had absolute power that nobody ever guessed he had. And they exclaimed. They just couldn't believe it. And I'm assuming it was Peter and the others who were joined in the voice that said, what kind of a man is this? That he even commands nature. The question today is do we acknowledge him, the man that they had to come to acknowledge him to be, the more overpowering person than they ever guessed he was. And the longer they were with him, the more amazing his authority became. And even today, he continues to be more than the highest expectations that we might ever have for him. Will we come to him with an implicit trust that this is God, who had become man, acting in that form? Or will we say, no, I'll dictate the terms on which I'll believe in him. I'll dictate the terms on how far far or how willingly I will follow him. Or will we come and say, you are God. Command me as you will. And I'm sure your commands will be right. In the third place today, I want to point out something that you probably didn't notice in this text. You saw Jesus here asleep in the boat. What does that say to you? It says he was a true man of flesh. He got tired. I can tell you dealing with hundreds of people who demand things from you is very tiring. People work isn't the same kind of work as chopping wood, perhaps, or or many physical things, but it's hard work. People drain you. Jesus was tired, and he slept in that boat soundly as as only a real human being that's tired can sleep. And yet in the next moment, he's standing up in the same boat, and he's acting like Superman, commanding nature. You see that contrast? A man of flesh who needs to sleep? An amazing man who gives commands that can't be refused. That tells you he was more than a normal man, of course. And in fact, there's a name for him in this text that you didn't pick up, perhaps, as we read it. But it's the first time this name is used for Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. The name is the Son of Man. In the third place today, I'm telling you that Jesus is the Son of Man. And that's a designation that means something very special. It's a designation that was used 81 times of him in the entire New Testament And every single time it's used, it's Jesus 
who is giving the name to himself or somebody who has, who has just heard him say it, echoing it back. In other words, it's a name he had for himself. Now, why did he call himself this title, the Son of Man? He gave it here first in verse 20. If we would look back to Daniel chapter 7, we'd get some good background. By the way, you could study this if, you have a, if you're interested and you have a good Bible concordance. Look up the phrase, Son of Man, and, and look for all the places that would make an interesting study for you to see all the things that are attached to this title. Can't begin to touch on them because there's 80-some of them. But if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, you get a clue of where this title begins. It has to do with a dream that Daniel had. A dream in which he saw God, whom he calls in that dream, the Ancient of Days. And into the presence of God, the Ancient of Days, came a, a person who Daniel's text describes as being one like a son of man. And as this person comes before the Ancient of Days, we read this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power so that all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Obviously, here's, a, here's someone, a man coming before God who's being given God-like authority. Now, for centuries after Daniel, other than the book of Ezekiel, which also mentions the title a lot, people apparently forgot about this title and this prophecy. It wasn't, you know, people of Israel were waiting for the Messiah, if Jesus had come and said, the Messiah, referring to himself, you know, the Messiah this, the Messiah that, they would, oh, whoa, we know what that means. Messiah, yeah, we're tuned to look for him. But son of man, they weren't tuned to look for. It was sort of an ambiguous title buried back there in the Old Testament text and pretty much forgotten about. And so when Jesus came and began using this title about himself, it was he who put the meaning of what this title is in. And, and again, I'd have to trace some 80 mentions, but let me just tell you, many of the mentions of this title refer to his suffering, to his lowliness, to the fact that he would be entirely alone and be rejected. Matthew 17, 22 would just be a representative sample for you. The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. But then in other places, especially as the gospel advances, the mentions of the Son of Man title refer to one who reigning Lord, and, and this is Daniel's vision, you see, beginning to come to the forefront. And then you get an example like Matthew twenty four thirty, where Jesus says this, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of the sky with power, with power and great glory, and he will gather his elect from one end of the earth to the other. Jesus defined this title that he gave himself. And the way he defined it in brief was that the one who was the Son of Man was a great sufferer, a lonely one, a homeless person, a rejected person, who became the most exalted person that you could possibly imagine. He went, he went through suffering in order to attain a grand and triumphal ultimate goal. I don't want you to think I'm totally fixed on Westerns today, although they formed a big part of my youth. 
If you will remember the old TV show, or if you go back even a little farther, I guess it was a radio show, of the Lone Ranger. You remember the Lone Ranger, the masked man who went around doing right? Every single episode of the Lone Ranger ended a common way, didn't it? The Lone Ranger and Tonto had just done some great good deed and set everything in good order, and they were riding off into the sunset, and somebody turned to somebody else and said, Who was that masked man? That's what was asked of Jesus. Who in the world is this man? who speaks this way, heals this way, commands nature, and makes demands of us. Why, he even said to us, anyone who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. What right does a man have to say something like that? Well, he has every right. Because he's the son of the highest. He's the son of God in human flesh. And his power and authority exhibited on earth command us to look upon him as being much like a great colossus individual bestride history with one foot in suffering and degradation and loneliness and the other foot planted in the glories of eternity. And the most important question you will ever settle for yourself Who is Jesus? But after you answer that one, then you also have to answer, if you will be his disciple, will I give him the authority to rule over me that he demands? And what will it mean for me on Wednesday or Friday of my week that I would put Christ first above everyone else, above every other claim? above everything that would make money for me or increase my reputation or help my family. What will it mean to put Christ first? I want to close with these sentences from a 19th century evangelist named J.C. Ryle, an Englishman. Ryle wrote this, and I'll just let his words stand. Nothing has done more harm to the cause of Christianity than to fill the ranks of the church with those who are willing to make an empty profession of faith and then do nothing else. There surely is a great deal of external religion in many lives that shows little of true redeeming grace. So he said, let no one enlist with Jesus and under any false pretenses. Let us tell every would-be disciple that there is indeed a crown of glory at the end of our human race. But first, there's a daily cross in the path where Jesus calls. Let us pray. Father, the splendor of your Son still has power to amaze us, even in the page of Scripture. We have not seen Him with our physical eyes, but reading of Him. We say, here is someone who has no equal, no one to compare to Him. Father, help us to do do more than just be amazed, to just admire Him, to just say how splendid He is. 
Help us to hear his call to put him before father or mother or fortune or home or anything else. For his glory. Amen.